Hello, and welcome to Wicked Wednesdays, your weekly podcast on sex and sexuality with an emphasis on BDSM kink and poly relationships. I'm your host, Wicked Fellow, and I'm joined by the lovely Wicked Katja. Good evening. She is setting the proper tone for this (laughs) very special episode of Wicked Wednesdays. This is going to be part of a series that I had been thinking about doing for some time, talking about how BDSM interacts with the law. Questions I frequently get are, should I have a contract? What are the legal ramifications of BDSM, etc.? And I've been reading up on that, studying on that, and talking to people that know far more than I do about that. That's not Koch's specialty, but what Katja does know a lot about is constitutional law, which is very important because we're recording this the week that a draft decision was leaked from the Supreme Court that they are about to overturn Roe versus Wade, the landmark 1973 decision that constitutionalized a woman's right to an abortion. More importantly, it codified the notion that women have the right to choose what to do with their bodies, to make decisions regarding their own personal health and well-being, and that those decisions were hers and hers alone. In the past 50 years since that decision was handed down, many states have sought to curtail that right and doing everything from instituting waiting periods and successive appointments that need to be made, et cetera, including determining how long after pregnancy an abortion can be completed, which currently, what is it? Is it three weeks, six weeks? Are we talking about the Texas yeah. law? As far as the Constitution goes, it's it's been viability. but Viability, unfortunately, is not as precise a notion as we would like. But in Texas, and I don't know exactly the date, but it is very soon. It is just a couple weeks after one would miss their first period and even know they were pregnant. Around six weeks. States have sought to further curtail that right, enacting waiting periods, enacting very strict regulations on the types of services that an abortion clinic can offer. For example, they have to have certain hospital admitting privileges, et cetera. These are not necessarily bad things. Obviously, something can go wrong, and you want that clinic to be able to transfer a patient to a hospital where they can receive more intensive care for what is normally not a very complex procedure in and out in about an hour and a half, two hours. However, while all these laws have been put forward under the guise of women's health and women's safety, It's a fairly transparent effort to further curtail a woman's right to make her own decisions concerning her body. This is something that I've talked about before, where we have a very paternalistic, very misogynistic society, and we believe that women aren't allowed to make good decisions for themselves. This goes, obviously, from one extreme in abortion, but even things like fertility treatments. If a woman wants to get her tubes tied, she'll frequently receive pushback from doctors saying... Well, what if you want to have kids someday? What does your husband think about this, etc.? When one of my partners went to have her tubes tied of her own choice, she received a lot of pushback, and she had to search around until she finally found a doctor who was more than happy to do this based on her decision alone, not asking what her boyfriend thought or what her husband thought, etc. And it's fairly ridiculous the amount of hoops that states have been trying to make women go through to procure an abortion. Now that Roe has been tacitly overturned, obviously the decision is still in draft form, but from the legal scholars that I've been reading and watching, this is a fairly advanced version of that decision. This is not the first draft of this opinion. It's very likely that Roe will be overturned. If Roe is overturned, the dominoes start to fall very quickly. And we're going to get into that. We're going to talk about a lot of this This introduction might get a little bit long-winded. I want to let you know this is not a normal Wicked Wednesdays episode. This is speaking specifically about this case, our reaction to it. I know that both Koch and I are very upset, and we're upset for a number of different reasons. You know, we're not just upset about the fact that this is a huge step backwards for personal freedoms. I'm upset for all the people that I know that have either had an abortion or may need to have an abortion in the future. I'm upset about the fact that we're rolling back women's rights 50 years in this country, which is not a good thing. And I'm very upset about the precedent that this sets in a legal fashion and how this case could be the first domino to fall in many 
civil rights cases and many civil liberties cases. So I brought Katya along because in addition to be a woman, and this is something that's much more in her lane to speak about, she's also a constitutional scholar and she's studied constitutional law. So she knows far more about this than I do. I can be angry and I can point to things that I've seen in the media, but Katja has a much greater understanding of how this actually works in the court system. So most of this is going to be her putting forth how this is all tied together with other civil rights cases and a bit of the history involved in this decision or this draft decision. <laughs> right. Trying not to get too much into the weeds, but I, I think that what some people might not understand is that this is really not just about abortion. Now, that's not to minimize the abortion right. Having the right to access abortion, um, specifically safe abortion, right? Because one of those memes that's going around right now is you can't actually ban abortion. You can only ban safe abortion, right? It's something that's going to happen no matter what. Having access to health care, um, safe health care that lets a woman decide when to start her family, right? Maybe she's 17, maybe she's 24 and unemployed, right? For, for whatever reason, maybe she's 30 and married, but her, her spouse is abusive. For whatever reason she has, um, you know, many of us believe that the woman is best positioned to know if this is the right time for her to start a family. And I think fundamentally, there is really no other circumstance in which we would think that it is okay for the government to force a person to use their body um, to support the life of another person, right? Like we don't have laws forcing mothers to breastfeed, though maybe that's coming down the, the bike. Um, we don't require people to, to give kidneys to their brothers, even if they're compatible. Um, so a lot of us would consider this to be just kind of a part of basic bodily autonomy. There's two points that I want to bring up in that. Sure. One is directly in line with what you're saying in that the police can't take your blood without a warrant from a judge. They can't make you blow in a breathalyzer. You can refuse and you're probably going to get arrested, but they can't make you do it. We're talking about breath. You know, the, the law has said we cannot compel you to do these things unless it's an extreme circumstance, unless a judge actually sits down and says, John Doe has to give blood. We want to know if he's drunk driving or not. So there are protections on bodily autonomy. There are very strong protections on bodily autonomy. And the government can't mandate that I have a vasectomy. The government can't mandate that I am sterilized, right. which for quite some time they did and could. So those cases, again, We've decided, no, the government has no role in doing that until now. The other thing I wanted to bring up was outside of an elective abortion, you know, choosing this is not a good time in my life or this is a terrible situation to bring a child into. Abortion is a medical procedure. There are a lot of reproductive problems that the cure for is an abortion. If you have an ectopic pregnancy, if you have a miscarriage that has not been expelled, for example, this is a medical procedure. And it is not just something that, oh, I was a silly party girl and I got pregnant. And now I don't want to have this kid anymore. Even if that is the reason, I have no problem with that. But that's what is being portrayed as. It's being portrayed as, oh, well, if you didn't want to have a kid, you shouldn't have had unprotected sex. You should have been more careful. You should have whatever, as if somehow it's our right to tell another person what to do with their body and how to act about it. But leaving aside elective abortions, the fact that this is a medical procedure and the law does not give any protections for that. Right. Um, and so, you know, one thing that is really interesting is that historically pre-Roe v. Wade, um, even states that did ban abortion or banned abortion, um, you know, at perhaps an, an earlier stage of pregnancy than is constitutionally protected under Roe v. Wade, they would still have these carve-outs for basically rape, incest, and the, the life and health of the mother. But a lot of these new laws that states have been, either they've already passed them and they're sitting there, these are these trigger laws that are going to come into effect as soon as, you know, Roe v. Wade is struck down, um, or laws that are pending, um, a lot of them don't have these exceptions for rape and incest that were 
um, that were part of the legal landscape before Roe v. Wade. And so we're actually not just looking at turning back Roe v. Wade, but going to an even stricter regime than has ever really existed. Um, There's a lot we could get into there. Um, about the historical record and what really actually was and and was not the state of the law before Roe v. Wade. That's something that, that Justice Alito in this uh, draft decision gets into, but of course he gets into it in a very one-sided way. What I would really like to do is I would like to give you guys a little more context for what's going on in this decision and why I think it's really significant, not just for the abortion right, which, you know, as we've indicated, we think is in and of itself very, very important. But we know there are those of you out there who maybe the right to abortion isn't something you've thought about much in your life, you haven't needed to, um, which is great. (laughs) But there are a lot of other reasons that people should be really worried about this. And specifically, kinky people should be, is one group that should be particularly worried about this kind of thing. And so in order to make that point, I want to give you guys a little bit of history and explain some of these implications. So... Our Constitution has a number of rights that are enumerated. So, for example, First Amendment, free speech, free exercise of religion. Um, but the Constitution also has, you know, there, there are only a few of these. <laughs> there aren't that many rights that we hold as individuals that are explicitly spelled out in the Constitution. It has always been contemplated that people retained rights that were not listed out in the Constitution. Um, So in fact, when the Constitution was first written, the reason the Bill of Rights didn't exist in the original Constitution and, and had it to be added on later as the first 10 amendments was because there was this concern that if you list out certain rights, the implication is that no other rights exist, right? And so the framers were originally, they they didn't want to list rights because they didn't want that implication. Later, these rights were enacted into law. But even then, if you look at the Ninth Amendment, it makes clear that just because rights aren't listed doesn't mean that that individuals still aren't retaining those rights. So it's always been contemplated, but I mean, really in the first hundred years after the Bill of Rights, we didn't have a lot of constitutional law cases really figuring out what the boundaries, what the contours were of those rights until the last century and really the, the latter half of the last century. We, we did have, you know, the occasional case come up for very specific enumerated rights, like First Amendment litigation started really coming to a head in kind of the early 20th century. But it really wasn't until 1965 that the court started being a little more explicit in formulating this idea that the concept of liberty, which is a vague concept that that is explicitly mentioned in the 14th Amendment, um, that the concept of liberty included this right to privacy and autonomy in the bedroom and, and just in the choices we make in our personal lives. And so that started in 1965 in Griswold v. Connecticut. The Supreme Court struck down a law that prohibited persons from purchasing contraceptives, uh, at least in the context of married couples. So they, they found that the marital relationship itself contained this right to marital privacy. So that was the first recognition of privacy. Then um, I think 1972, that was extended to unmarried persons. And then the very next year, 1973, we had Roe v. Wade, right? And so You know, it was the same idea that the liberty interest that you find in the 14th Amendment, it contains this right to privacy and bodily autonomy and making these decisions that are just absolutely integral to shaping and ordering your life. And I think, you know, in Griswold, for example, the court made the point like, look, do we really want states to have the power to go enforce this contraceptive ban? Do we really want them going into the bedrooms and checking for this kind of thing? That was part of what was underlying this right to privacy was we don't want the government going that deeply into people's personal lives. You know, in 1972, we had Roe v. Wade. It extended this idea of privacy come, like being derived from the concept of liberty that's that's stated in the constitution and this idea that there are there is this certain realm of private decisions 
um, that that people need to have. And so, and we've we've discussed Roe v. Wade, right, and and how important we feel that abortion right is. But what I think is really interesting for those of us who are Kingsters is going to be where the court went after Roe v. Wade, right? And the reason for that. The reason we're so interested in that right now is because if Roe v. Wade is gone in about a month or so, whenever this final decision comes out, it really brings this entire line of cases into question, including the ones I'm about to get into, right? So giving you a little more context, just kind of the larger political context, Griswold v. Connecticut, 1965, this was the Warren Court. The Warren Court was known as being the most liberal court that we had. This is the same court that decided Brown v. Board of Education. Um, which struck down segregation in schools. Um, This was a court that was very, very protective of civil rights. So next, we had Chief Justice Berger come in in, I think, 1969. And this was kind of a transitional court. So it wasn't entirely liberal, entirely liberal. It wasn't entirely conservative, but it was this kind of transition court before the Rehnquist Court, which is when you say that the Warren Court was most liberal, yes. which it was very liberal, yes. in the classical definition of liberal, sure, we're still talking about a bunch of old white men in the 60s. Sure. Men but, who had been born in the 20s. Sure. But we are talking also about white men who overturned Plessy v. Ferguson. They which <laughs> Because they were more interested in what the law said than what their feelings said. I believe that's a big difference because they had a huge respect for the law. And then they studied the law and they said, well... I may personally not believe in this, and I would say that a number of those justices probably did not carry these beliefs into their own bedroom, for example. But they looked at the law and they said, well, this is what the law says. The law is important, and I'm going to uphold the law of the land. And my job is to interpret the law of the land, not what my heart tells me, which is truly important when we talk about what the current court is doing. Please continue. Right. So... 1969, um, Chief Justice Berger comes in, Chief Justice Warren retires. And so we have this transitional court. Roe v. Wade was decided under the Berger court, not the Warren court. So even though we were in this kind of transitional period, you know, we still had um, this right to privacy being extended to abortion during that period. Now, if you want to look at the, the late Berger court, 1986, we have Bowers v. Hardwick. So in Bowers v. Hardwick... Um, the state of Georgia, I believe it was, had what was actually very, very, very common at the time. They had an anti-sodomy law. And this anti-sodomy law, it was not the kind of thing that police were going around and, you know, I- investigating people for. But if they were in your home for another reason, investigating something else that they thought, you know, you might be doing, and they caught you in the act... You know, this would be selectively enforced against gay men at that time. And Bowers v. Hardwick came before the court. And this is this is the same court that had decided, or at least there were some of the same members, right? We're going from 1973 to 1986. There is some overlap in personnel from Roe v. Wade to Bowers v. Hardwick. But in Bowers v. Hardwick, the Supreme Court said... They, they framed things very, very narrowly, right? So whereas in Roe v. Wade, we're looking to the Constitution, we're looking for these big ideas of liber- liberty and personal autonomy, right? And we're saying the right to abortion falls under that. Things were framed very, very narrowly in Bowers v. Hardwick to say, hey, there's no right to homosexual sex in the Constitution. And they said, this Georgia sodomy law is fine, and they upheld it. Bearing in mind that while it was used to enforce and to subjugate gay people, specifically gay men, mostly. The sodomy laws that were and are still on the books in many states do not reference necessarily same sex. Right. I believe that that's the case in the Georgia law in 1986 that was upheld. I think it was, it did not mention same sex. Although, fast forward now (laughs) to 2003, Um, And this is the Rehnquist Court. And the composition of the court was, I would say, swingy, right? We had had kind of some strong conservatives and some strong liberals. And we had Justices O'Connor and Justice Kennedy, um, who wrote the two major, the majority opinion and like a strong concurrence. In Lawrence v. Texas, it was once again a sodomy law, although I think in that case it actually was 
explicitly written in the law they that did, it was same-sex. They did, in fact, change it and said the quiet part out loud, which was they right. were not <clears throat> routinely enforcing this law on a married couple, the Johnsons, having a blowjob, which is sodomy. They were using it when they cracked down on gay bars, where they cracked down on gay cruising sites, etc. <clears throat> you can't just necessarily bring somebody in for loitering, but if you can throw a sodomy charge in there, that's a much bigger deal. And like Kachi was saying, this wasn't the Gestapo knocking on people's doors and asking, are you having anal sex in there? It was whenever it was applicable, whenever it was convenient, whenever they needed something. Right. Is essentially, we don't like what you're doing. We don't like who you are. We don't believe in homosexuality. And by the way, we have a law in the books that say what you're doing right now is against the law. Right. But, you know, the the difference in the language of the statutes from Bowers to Lawrence v. Texas um, that's not really like that's not what's really driving the decision in the outcome. So I haven't talked about the outcome in Lawrence v. Texas yet. But in Lawrence v. Texas, the court overturned Bowers. Right. At this point, not quite a 20 year old decision. They really, really heavily relied on the Griswold Roe v. Wade line of reasoning of recognizing in the concept of liberty, um, this idea of privacy and autonomy in the the private sphere. Um, so they, they didn't really decide it on, oh, this was, you know, facially targeted, because you could make that argument. You could make an argument under the Equal Protection Clause that there was discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. But that still has never really carried the day in the Supreme Court, that argument. Instead, it was taking these concepts that were developed in Griswold and Roe and really making this point that we all have rights. So Justice Kennedy, in his majority opinion, he invoked that liberty interest in the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. He stated that the Texas anti-sodomy statute touched, quote, upon the most private human conduct, sexual behavior, and in the most private of places, the home and attempted to control a personal relationship that is within the liberty of persons to choose without being punished. So this is really the language that I think is the most relevant to us, even those of us in, you know, engaged in straight relationships and BDSM relationships where we are doing things that are weird. We're doing things that people might not understand. We're doing things that some people might not want us to do but it's none of their business. And language like this in Lawrence v. Texas seems to support this idea that it's none of their business, that it's not the government's place to really inquire into that in the first place, right? Much less punish it for punish us for it. And so that's really the big concern beyond the concern around abortion is you're throwing the door wide open, right? If you strike down Roe v. Wade, particularly if you strike it down, using the reasoning that Justice Alito uses, which is very broad reasoning. And and who knows, it might like that very, very broad absolutist approach might not survive because it is so extreme all the way until decision day. It's certainly if they want Justice Roberts to join in, it, it can't come forward in that that way. But they have five votes without Justice Roberts. So you're saying. Yeah. For the layman here. Sure. That when the Supreme Court decides a case they don't look at established law. They don't look at previous Supreme Court decisions. (laughs) They just start from a clean slate every time. No. So would you like me to explain the common law? Well, I'm just curious because it seems like in those personal freedoms case, they were referencing cases decided just a scant 10, 15 years before as settled law, as saying, We passed this law as a Supreme Court. We upheld this decision. And we're now referencing that decision to say that this new thing that we're talking about is also valid, as if somehow they're connected, as if somehow once the court has established something, it's important. There's a word for that, I (laughs) believe. Precedent. (laughs) And this is truly important as we talk about Alito's opinion. Because one of the things that you might have heard about is him saying that Roe v. Wade was a bad law when it was decided, and therefore we're going to ignore the fact that a Supreme Court, a majority of the Supreme Court, I believe it was eight to one or like seven to two, it was it was decisive. It wasn't close that these people did not know what they were talking about. They did not understand the law. They did not understand you know, the Constitution, that they were just wrong. That's his primary argument is that 
in order to overturn a previous Supreme Court decision, which certainly can be done. There's a history of Supreme Court decisions being overturned. And when they're overturned, we look at them and say, yeah, when this was decided, this was a bad case. They made the bad decision for these legal reasons. When the Japanese were interred during World War II, that was upheld by the Supreme Court. That was a bad decision. And we can look back and say, yeah, what were they thinking? There are a number of decisions that have been overturned. Right. And I just mentioned Bowers v. Hardwick, for example. Usually when that extraordinary event happens, because the Supreme Court up until last week was extremely reticent to overturn a previous Supreme Court decision. Because again, we're not talking about something that was passed 200 years ago. This was 50 years ago. This was recent. This is not something from the 1800s, one of those weird listicles of, did you know it's illegal to eat ice cream in Cincinnati on Sundays? Those weird laws? No, this is established part of our rights as Americans for 50 years. This current court is saying that decision was completely wrong on the day it was decided. And 50 years later, God has sent us to rectify this mistake that the Supreme Court made back in the 70s. He doesn't say that part out loud, but that's definitely underlying his... Very much. He's he's very much saying that they did not know what they were talking about. And this country has had some Supreme Courts that were not great, that could be looked back on and thought, wow, that was a bunch of yahoos. What were they thinking? Or they were thinking with an 18th century mindset or a 19th century mindset, one that we would not agree with today because things change. Oddly enough, it was once perfectly legal to own a person in the United States. Did you not know that? (laughs) Wow. Good old days. Women didn't have the right to vote. Good old days. This was all set law. This was law. I would say that the big distinction there is that um, the last couple things you listed, those were not overturned by the Supreme Court. They were actually passed constantly for those This was more, sometimes we look at the past and we think, what were they thinking? Sure. But these were accepted norms. When sure. women tried to get the right to vote, it was not a popular thing. It wasn't the kind of thing where people were like, oh, yeah, we should have given women the right to vote. People died. There were riots. There was a huge international movement for women's suffrage. And people fought against it tooth and nail. People thought it was going to be the downfall of society and civilization. And now we look back in that and kind of, you know, chuckle and think how quaint that they didn't give women the right to vote. But that is the kind of thing I'm talking about, where we can look back and say, yeah, that was not a just law. That was not a good law. Saying that a woman does not have voting rights, saying that she doesn't have bodily autonomy, saying that she is her husband's property, saying that she can be, you know, forced to do things against her will, codified law for a very long time. Sure. So the other crux of Alito's opinion is that for many years, centuries even, abortion was illegal. Going back to the 1600s, and he cites a judge who just happened to put witches to death by burning. Great settled case law. And you know, it actually did not count as abortion if it was before quickening, right? Which is when the woman is able to feel movement at around between 16 and 20 weeks. While it may be true that abortion wasn't legal, what counted as abortion hasn't always been the same thing. So him saying that (laughs) for hundreds of years in the United States, abortion was illegal, and then we made it legal for a little while, but now we're setting the record straight, is such weak tea. There were a lot of things that were illegal previously. You voting, for example. How does that square with this? How can I not present a case to the court and say, for 200 years, women and black people couldn't vote? Therefore, we should return to that because just for the last 100 years or so, women have been voting. And that's not, that's nothing. I have 100 years of case law saying it's against the law. These things matter because when you overturn a key decision like that, you don't get to carve out an exception. You don't get to say, this case is special and does not fall within the realm of legal logic and how the law works. Because once you say, well, we're overturning this based on this precedent, that it used to be illegal and then we made it legal and it was a bad decision when it was made. Do you have any idea how much of U.S. law falls into that? Cohabitation is illegal in probably the state you live in. It is against the law for two unmarried people to dwell in the same place together. Is it ignored? Of course it is. 
Is it a law? It sure is. And if they need to use it against you, they can. These are the kind of things that I'm upset about and very worried about because when you don't have surety, when you don't have an understanding of where you stand in the law, your life becomes very fraught. Your life becomes very unpredictable. And that predictability, to harken this back to abortion, is one of the major reasons that rule was decided, so that women could choose when to become pregnant as a last stop effort if contraception failed. Because believe it or not, not everybody wants to have kids. Not everybody should have kids. And if someone doesn't want to have a child, why would you force them to have a child? There's this strange busybody logic that I've heard many times of, oh, well, you don't want the child now, but it's as soon as it's born, you'll love that child and protect that child, and it'll be amazing. And for some people, that is absolutely true. And the millions of kids in foster care, the millions of kids that are abused and neglected and brought up in horrible homes, says that that's not true as often as it is true. So by forcing women to give birth, by forcing them into this position where you're saying, since I believe it's wrong, you can't do something. There's no end to this. There's no end to this whatsoever. Contraception is on the line. Gay rights are absolutely on the line. Interracial marriage is absolutely on the line. You know, and I think that, you know, <clears throat> this idea of morality and, and the extent to which we can legislate morality, obviously we can to some extent, but this is really the difference between Bowers v. Hardwick and Lawrence v. Texas, because in Bowers v. Hardwick, yeah, that was really about legislating morality, and they were okay with that, right? But then by the time Lawrence v. Texas comes around with all of its talk about this liberty interest in the private sphere, private relationships, making these decisions, it becomes clear that like there is a limit <laughs> to the degree to which we can legislate other people's morality. Like there is some sphere in your life that the government can't touch. Like that is the idea here. And that is why this is such a big deal because as big a deal as abortion is, this is not just about that, right? Like this is about that very idea that is kind of underlying and emanating from Roe v. Wade and affecting a lot of other cases out there. There's a lot of decisions that came later, which is this idea that that private sphere exists that the government needs to keep its hands off of. I have tried to restrain myself as much as I can because I'm very angry. I'm angry at the precedent it sets. I'm angry at the hypocrisy. You have Judge Clarence Thomas, who is a black man married to a white woman. And in his lifetime, he knows about Loving. Was it Loving v. Virginia? Yeah. A Supreme Court case where interracial marriage was legalized and made a right, made something that the states can't tell you you can't do. Guess what was illegal for centuries before loving? And if you apply the logic, if you take the Alito document and you search for abortion and pull it out and you write interracial marriage, it all scans. It's the exact same argument. If you take out interracial marriage and you put in whatever you want, it scans because we've had things be illegal for a long time and realize that it was wrong to make them illegal and overturn them. So for me... The hypocrisy of that for him to be completely oblivious to the fact that he's not oblivious. <laughs> he, he stood up in a conference today and said, "This is the law. Deal with it. Too bad, so sad. What, what what's is, your problem? What's this this draft of Roe v. Wade." He said, "This is the law. Deal with it." I am paraphrasing. Okay, but very much, yeah. He was saying that. We will not be swayed by public opinion. We will not bow down to the people protesting outside the Supreme Court. We're here to decide the law, and you have to deal with it. You have to live with it, I believe is what he said. I think I just— Then so, again, if I was married to Jenny Thomas, maybe I'd want it over too. <laughs> I think um, for me, I you know, compared to Sir, I'm, I'm, I'm still—I have the innate optimist in me that can't quite give up, that, that feels like this can't possibly be the opinion that actually comes out in a month or so, that like they took the most extremist, the angriest white man of all the white men, right? Took the, took the most extreme member of the court, had him write the most extreme possible opinion. It was He's just not. a draft. Oh, he is though. He's not. Have you seen Amy Coney Barrett's opinions? 
Yeah, I don't think she would have written this. I think she absolutely would have written this. She just would have had more God in it. <laughs> she was bred in a vat to overturn Roe v. Wade. Yeah, it's not that I think that she is less conservative in her heart. It's that I think she's smarter in terms of how she writes things. Again, I'm kind of surprised that they didn't hide behind the veil of her femininity to be like, look, we had a woman write this. Right. But the notion that four sitting justices sat in front of Congress and the Senate, I believe. I know. And said, we believe in case law. We believe that Roe is the law of the land. We believe that this is a decided case, et cetera, when they were lying. Right. From the moment they got onto the court until now, they've been literally waiting for their opportunity. And before the flowers have started growing on Ruth Bader Ginsburg's fucking grave, they have passed this. Is it any surprise to you that at the first opportunity they possibly could, boom, what case did they go for? Roe v. Wade. So it's complete nonsense. And all of them are signing on to this opinion saying it was bad law when it was decided. It was bad from the beginning and it goes against legal precedent and public opinion. If they had said that in their Senate hearings, if they had, if Kavanaugh had sat there and said, oh, it was a bad decision when it was decided, and I think it goes against 200 years of American history, right. if Barrett had said that, right. if Alito had said that, right? you can't say that. You, if, you can, if you go into it and you say, I believe that this is a bad law and I will overturn it at the first opportunity, you're not going to be a Supreme Court judge. So you lie and then you wait till you have a packed Supreme Court which is why elections matter, my friends, three appointees. It went from being a court that, while very mixed and sometimes very polarized, could be counted on to not be radical and extreme, to now we have a supermajority of conservatives on the court. And the first thing they do, the first big decision coming out of the Supreme Court, is overturning a 50-year-old law that gives women the right to choose how to use their own bodies. And it is infuriating to me. And I'm a dude. It makes me angry because the hypocrisy is a huge part of it. It makes me angry because it's none of your goddamn business. It's not your problem. I, if you are rabidly anti-abortion, I'm fine with that. Don't get one. I'm absolutely fine with it. Yeah. (laughs) Don't get an abortion. Don't do that thing. But it's not your place to tell somebody else, anybody else, your daughter, your wife, your sister, that they can't have an abortion. You're so concerned about it. If you think that it's a horrible crime and that person is going to hell, that's their problem. You're not their judge and neither is Sam Alito. If that is the moral quandary you have, let it go. Don't get an abortion and let other people do what they want to do with their lives because... I'm very serious. I know that there's this huge trope from the conservatives and the right-wingers talking about a slippery slope. If we allow gay marriage, what's next? They're going to allow people to marry horses? I don't give a flying fuck at a cheerio. If the horse could consent. (laughs) It doesn't bother me. If that person wants to marry a horse, go ahead. But they're always concerned about the slippery slope, right? If we allow this one thing, who knows what's next? Complete chaos and bacchanalia is in the street. This is a slippery slope. This is a true legal slippery slope because when you do something like this, when you make this landmark decision, all these other civil rights are in jeopardy. They're all sitting there looking like the nervous puppet with side eye because they stand on the same or less standing as Roe v. Wade does. Roe v. Wade is 50 years old. And yes, the length of time it's been in a law is important because when something has been important, it's been challenged. When something has been around for 50 years, there's settled case law on both sides. There's decisions that have been made. It's been referenced in every civil rights legislation and Supreme Court case that has come down since 1973. It's a huge part of American law. And you don't just get to say, oh, well, we don't like this and our conscience tells us that it's wrong. Therefore, we're going to overturn it. So I fear for gay rights. I fear very much for gay rights because, believe it or not, a lot of people don't like gay people. And they will go to enormous lengths to make gay people's lives miserable. You've seen this. The whole bakeries thing, the whole we won't make cakes for gay people. It's a much more tolerant time now. 
in 2022 than in the 90s when I was growing up. But it still sucks now. Even in 2022, gay people are still heavily persecuted by a large chunk of society. And if you don't think that there's going to be challenges to gay marriage, to gay people having adoption privileges, all these things, watch me. And I, the thing is, you know, Alito, at the, at the very end of his opinion, he, he says, like, oh, these people are saying that this might affect, you know, Lawrence v. Texas and Obergefell. That's the case that decided that same-sex marriage was constitutionally protected. But don't worry about that. This is, this is just about abortion. Well, this whole this decision is about abortion, but the way he argued it was very, 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 very broad and going after the very fundamental reasoning that's going to apply to all of those cases. So just saying the words, we're only deciding about abortion, <laughs> don't worry about that stuff, it's not convincing to anybody. And that's not how the law works. You don't right. get to have carve-outs like that. You, right. you don't get to say, you know, don't reference this case unless you're talking about abortion. <laughs> right. That's not how the law works. Right. When you overturn precedent like this, this will be used to overturn other precedents. You'll have people saying, well, we overturned Roe v. Wade on less you know, strong standing than we're going to overturn gay marriage. We overturned Roe v. Wade. And do not underestimate the incredible energy of the busybody community. The people that want to tell you how to live your life, the people that spend their nights laying in bed worrying about what you're doing in your bed, the people that are against legalizing marijuana, that don't use marijuana but don't want you to use marijuana either. Why do they care? For the children, I'm sure. It's none of their damn business, but they are more politically active. They are more energetic. They are more prone to put their money where their mouth is and help pass legislation making it illegal for you to have marijuana. Because some people are sad, pathetic little people, and they have nothing better to do with their lives than worry about what you're doing. Does it affect the kink community? Oh yes, it absolutely does. Does it affect the gay community? Very much so. Does it affect the interracial, you know, any interracial union you've ever seen is literally in jeopardy. Because Alito doesn't get to decide what some lawmaker in Tennessee does. Alito can say, oh, well, this is only about abortion. But that lawmaker in Tennessee can say, well, guess what, fellas? They overturn Roe v. Wade. Loving v. Virginia is next. Because they can do that. They can bring those suits. And there are people that absolutely believe it's wrong for a black person and a white person or a white person and an Asian person to get married, as if somehow it's their business. So one thing, a couple things that I wanted to hit before we wrap up, and I know this is long, but... I wanted to talk to you guys about this. I wanted to air my mind at least and at least feel like I'm doing something. Because when the government is turning in D.C. and I'm sitting here in Detroit, I know that Sam Alito's not worried about what I think about this. <laughs> but I'm worried about you guys. I'm worried about my rights. I'm worried about Koch's rights. I'm worried about Koch's daughter's rights, the world that she's going to grow up in. Do we have to get her that red cloak and that white hood now or should we wait a little while? Because that's exactly what these people want. And I'm not exaggerating. That's what they want. So the trigger laws, and these are important. A lot of states, I, what did I say, 14? Did you look up that number? A number of states have already passed laws. And they're called trigger laws. They're just waiting. Since Roe versus Wade had been decided, and the states couldn't outright ban abortion because it was a federally protected right, they had to do these somersaults and backflips and gymnastics to try to curtail abortion as much as they could. And they did. They made it very difficult to get an abortion. They certainly didn't support it. There's one abortion clinic in the state of Kansas, to give you an idea. The states have made it very difficult to exercise this right. And some states have gone as far as to pass laws that say, we're going to ban abortion the moment that Roe v. Wade is overturned. That's, you know, I'm not going to give you the legalese in these laws. I don't know it. But that's what they do. They have been drafted and they take effect the moment that Roe v. Wade is overturned. They're ready to go. They're keyed up. Nothing has to change the moment that the Supreme Court says we're overturning this law. Boom. Places like Texas, Georgia, a lot of places in the South, but not only the South. Overnight, it becomes illegal, flat out illegal. And when the Supreme Court is lying to you, and I wish I could say something other than that, 
they're going to say, oh, no, no, we're not trying to get rid of abortion. We're just giving it back to the states so that they can decide, so that individually the states can decide what's best for them. That's a more representative form of democracy. One of the Supreme Court's roles is to protect the minority. That's part of their mandate. That's part of what they're there for. They are there to make sure that the majority isn't always stepping on the minority. That's part of their job. So knowing what they know, and believe me that Judge Alito knows that there are 15, 16, however many states with trigger laws, he knows that the moment that decision is drafted and put out and published, that in these states, he's made a decision for millions of people him, they collectively have made that decision for millions of people. It's not going to get re-legislated in Georgia. It's going to be settled law. It's going to be, this is the law of the land. It's against the law to get an abortion in this state. And because people aren't busy being busybodies enough, places like Texas have decided that not only do we want to make abortion illegal, but if you travel outside of Texas for the purpose of getting an abortion, we're going to try to make that illegal too. As Katya tried to assure me, that's very hard to do in the United States. However, this is Texas, and they have put bounties out, <laughs> literally. That's right. how the new Texas law works. It's against the law for the state to prosecute individuals for this kind of thing. So what Texas and their amazing big 10-gallon hat wearing brains thought was, we're just going to deputize the entire civil population of Texas, and we're going to make every single one of them our little enforcers. And since we can't sue and we can't bring you to justice about getting an abortion, Bob Joe over here can do it. And we're going to make sure that not only is he protected, that if he brings suit against Katya for getting an abortion and he's proven wrong, he's protected. Right. Isn't yeah. that fun? But Katya's not protected right. if Billy Bob Joe sues her for getting an abortion and it turns out to be completely false and she's never had an abortion. The court goes, well, that's sorry. Guess what? You still have to pay your lawyer. You still have to deal with all the inconvenience. But Billy Bob Joe, he's free to go and sue some other poor woman trying to get $10,000. They've made it very clear that they want this vigilante-style justice. And what did the Supreme Court say about that? So it hasn't been decided on the merits. So this is, that's a different case, you realize, right? I am not. <laughs> and I've had whiskey sours, but I'm mad. So caught you to tell you the truth. <laughs> yeah, I I have to go back and, and refresh my memory because I haven't been thinking about that particular case. But that was a case a few months ago. And it was a standing issue. So I don't, the Supreme Court never actually reached the merits of the case. But I can do more I research. stand corrected. However, with this court, do I expect them to uphold that? Yes. I would literally put nothing past them right now. That's the level of faith I have in our supermajority conservative Supreme Court. I don't think any of our rights are safe, unless they're gun-toting rights, in which case the court has said that those are very safe. I, I'm a Second Amendment supporter. I think that, you know, keeping and bearing arms is not a terrible thing. I'm not an absolutist, and I think that the well-regulated part is very important, and that's the part that people like to leave out of the Second Amendment. But the court has made it very clear that they're interested in gun rights and that they'll protect those. A woman's right to autonomy, not so much. Yeah. So I'm just looking looking up. So that litigation, the, I think the latest on the Texas law was in March. So the whole reason that they're doing this thing of trying to deputize individuals is because they're trying to make it as hard as possible for suit to be brought. And that's where they're succeeding. It's because who can bring this suit now, right? So, for example, abortion providers in the state of Texas have tried to sue that this law is unconstitutional, but SB8 removes the enforcement of the state from the law of the hands of the state officials and delegates to private citizens. Um, I may be a bit fuzzy on the details of the Texas thing. I know that this is, in fact, a thing where... So what Texas is trying to do is saying, we can't infringe on your civil rights, but Billy Bob Joe certainly can. And we're not going to do anything to stop Billy Bob Joe from doing that. In fact, we're going to incentivize it. Whether the Supreme Court has ruled on that, I think they decided not to block it, at least. Yeah, it hasn't been blocked, so it's in effect, but they haven't ever reached the merits of that case. And, and part of the reason is because the design of this law was to make it as hard as possible for anyone to be able to have standing to bring suit. And that's exactly what's going on. But that's precisely the kind of thing that I'm talking about, because you look at trans kids 
and trans athletes and trans people in general. You know, you and me, live and let live kind of people, I'm not doing anything to change the laws of our country to make trans people's lives miserable, right? The problem is, is the other side is. The side that thinks that somehow being trans is wrong and a threat to society, they're putting their money where their mouth is. They are enacting legislation. They are going above and beyond the call of duty to make trans people's lives miserable. And they're the ones pushing these laws to ban trans athletes and to ban even recognizing that a kid may be trans or gay or anything but a cis-heteronormative little kid. They're so worked up about it and they're so willing to put forth the effort and the money to make this stuff happen that they're winning. They're winning across the board because I look at this and I'm like, hey, you want to be trans? Great. Cool. I'm, I support you. I want to help make your life better. But I'm not protesting outside of the Florida legislature saying that trans people are going to hell and putting all my money into a campaign to enact laws. And that's my problem is that a lot of us on the tolerant side, a lot of us on the liberal side, on the live and let live, on the you do you side, that's kind of our notion is like, I'm not going to get involved in your stuff. Like, if you want to do this thing, go do it. I'm going to leave you alone. And if we all did that, it would be great. The problem is that the other side, the opposition to that, is very interested in making sure that you don't get to live the way that you want to if it goes against how they think you should live. And whether it's trans, gay, black and white, drug legalization, whatever it is, they are active and they are motivated and they are working against you and I trying to force us to follow their own personal moral code. And I cannot tell you how wrong that is. You know how wrong that is. No matter how religious you are, I will respect your religion, you know? I have nothing wrong with your religion. If you don't want to eat fish on Friday, or you do want to eat fish on Friday, cool. I'm not going to try and force you to eat beef. I'm going to respect your decision. If something is sacred to you, I'm going to respect that. I'm going to respect your beliefs, even if I don't have them. But the moment you tell me, I think this thing is wrong, and therefore you can't do it, you no longer have my respect. I'm not going to listen to you. I'm going to go do that thing, even if I didn't want to do it. So this notion, this concept that this august body of nine people is going to fundamentally change the country we live in, and it's a big change. And this is happening because one bad election. There's no way of parsing this. Trump appointed three justices, turning the court from being fairly balanced to being heavily conservative. And those justices have not gone out of their way to hide their political leanings. And they want to say that they're apolitical and they want to say that they're not interested in politics and they want to say that they're only interested in the law. And then they do this. It's not done yet. I'm in denial. The decision is not final. We will read it in June, probably. So why do you think... And so this is where things become a bit fluffier. Sorry for this really heavy episode. I'll try to edit it down into something listenable. There's a lot of controversy over who leaked it mm-hmm. and why did they leak it. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you what I think. I know and you can you tell think. me how wrong. <laughs> I, I honestly think there's two two possibilities. So one thing to note is this is unprecedented. Not only is the decision unprecedented, but these things never leak. It's a very small community. You know, this is not a huge organization. There's nine justices. How many clerks does each justice have? It's like three or four. It's not a huge staff. This is a very small community. You can fit them all on a school bus. So it should not be too difficult to figure out who had access to this and who leaked it. Now, it never happens. It's never happened before. As far as the reporting has told me, this has never happened that someone has leaked a draft opinion well ahead of when it was designed to be released. There have been some little bitty leaks after the fact. So we've gotten a few glimpses about how voting went and how deliberations went after the final decision's already made. But yeah, this, as far as I know, this is unprecedented. So there's two ideas in my mind, and both of them hold very good sway. One is that one of the liberal justices and or one of the liberal justices clerks because this is really, this is the kind of thing that's only handled by a few people. This is not generally distributed. It's not put on a bulletin board in the Supreme Court. This is very private stuff. So 
I would believe that one of them leaked this to give as much time as possible for our lawmakers to say, well, <laughs> if the court is going to overturn this landmark decision, we're going to do something like an amendment. We're going to do something like a amendment to the Bill of Rights, you know, guaranteeing bodily autonomy, personal freedoms, that kind of thing. I don't think there's enough time, even with this month. Things don't go that fast in Washington. So that's one possibility that I have, is that someone leaked it with the notion that something could be done to head this off. I don't think they released it thinking that the Supreme Court would bow to public opinion. I, I don't believe that. I don't believe that they did it so that people could protest from now till the release date and the judges would somehow change their mind. I, I don't believe that. I think that it was kind of a shot across the bow, a flare, if you were, saying, help us, saying, you know, if you guys want to act, you need to act now. You need to pass a law right now that guarantees these rights for women, or they're going to be taken away. Another competing theory, which is equally appealing to me, is that this was one of the conservatives. And I don't necessarily think it was a strategic move if this was the case. I think this was gloating. I think this was perhaps a Supreme Court justice's very public wife sharing this with some of her QAnon friends and not realizing that the moment you tell it to those howler monkeys, it's going to be in the hands of the news the next day. I'm putting this on the record now so that hopefully in a couple months <laughs> when we find out who this is, I can have the deep satisfaction of knowing that I was right and that this came he is from absolutely sure Jenny this was Thomas. Jenny Thomas. I really do. <laughs> I absolutely do. And I don't, again, this is not a Machiavellian plan. This is not some grand strategic thought. This is, look what we're doing. I'm so proud. I'm so happy. We're such amazing people that we're overturning this fundamental right that women need to have. So yeah, I'm putting that out there. Do you have any thoughts on that? I, I'm much more open. I think there are various possibilities. I mean, certainly the first thing that occurred to me was that it was a clerk out there, probably a liberal clerk, who wanted, you know, everybody to see this and be outraged and see if that outrage could do anything. That was my first thought. Um, I do want to make the point that if anything were to be done in the legislature, it wouldn't be a constitutional amendment. I mean, they're, they're like... There's no way that we could get a constitutional amendment through because it also has to be ratified. I, by, I believe you. Yeah. <laughs> by the states, um, but uh, but the legislature could enact legislation codifying the current standard in Roe, which is what's being talked about. Um, but it would have the the weight of a statute, and that's fine. Um, they would they would have to have some kind of hook that would allow them to do that, like its effect on interstate commerce, which. That's a whole nother conversation. Um, but yeah, so I don't know. That was the first thing I thought of, but I've heard other relatively plausible things. You know, one you didn't mention was that, you know, if this got leaked by the conservative side, it could do a couple things. One, it, because it is such an extreme opinion, it could put pressure on those other four justices who have initially in the initial conference voted to join the majority, but they didn't really have anything to do with this draft. And so it could put pressure on them to actually go along with this extreme draft. Um, and because it would be so public, like if they if now they change their vote or they decide to just sign on to, for example, Justice Roberts' concurrence and not this extreme draft, that it might look bad for them among the conservative sphere. So that's that's, you know, one thing I've heard. But yeah, I really don't know. I'm, I'm open to a lot of possibilities. What you're saying is that if you have one person that's super extreme on this opinion and, and three people or four people that are like, well, we want to overturn this, but we're not quite so extreme, by releasing this now you're forcing their hand. You're forcing them to say, yeah, we support this. Right. Because see, the, the deal is that if it were a final opinion and they signed on, that would mean Jeez. that they had reviewed it and they agreed with what was in it. Right. But since this was a draft, it doesn't actually mean that they would sign on to everything that's in here. Right. All it really means is that at conference, they voted how they want this case to come out. And I, I guess the difference between those five and what we hear about Roberts is that they they do want to overturn Roe. But all of this stuff in the opinion, all the reasoning, that's really just Alito as far as we know. This is a February draft. Oral arguments, I think, were in December. I could be wrong about that. 
yeah, we actually really don't know about those other four and how much of Justice Alito's draft they liked and how much they didn't. But there's a very real possibility that the that at least some of the other four on certain points would be like, I wouldn't really say that. I wouldn't go that exact place. And so the idea would be that by putting this out there, it's kind of almost forcing them to vote yay or nay on like the exact argument that Alito wants to make. The fact that one of the justices of the Supreme Court could have drafted that opinion based on flimsiest. This is bad stuff, guys. This is not good law. This is not how the law is supposed to work. I know we definitely got into some of the weeds on this and we got into stuff that I don't really have that good of a handle on, obviously. But again, this is just not how things are supposed to work. It's really not. All those people that, you know, poo-pooed the idea of how much damage could one president do. One president that has no shame and doesn't care can do a huge amount of damage. And these people are going to be making laws for the next 30, 40 years. Barrett is especially long-lived. She's like, what, 38, 40? No, she's older than that. Is she? Yeah. Yeah, well. I mean, she's... she's... She could still have a 50-year career on the court. Yeah. She could be in her late 40s. You know, again, this is this is long-term stuff. I, As much as it was a huge pain in the ass as it would be, term limits. I think it's time for term limits on the Supreme Court. I think that we can't have one president's bad decision influencing United States law for the next 50 years. You know, that would have been a huge shame with someone like Ginsburg, who was an amazing justice, who made one really bad call. Really bad call. I, I love you, Ruth, but you should have stepped down. But, you know, she was a force on the court for good for a very long time. And we benefited as a society from that. But we also have people like Thomas and now Barrett and Kavanaugh who are going to be making bad laws for the next 50 years. And I'm tired of it. We have to. This is something that can be done. We can, in fact, change and we can make it a term limit. There's very clever things that you can do because it's I think it's in the Constitution that they serve for life. It's in something that they serve for life. You can have them be, become part of an auxiliary, essentially, where they are members of the Supreme Court for the rest of their life. However, they only serve as needed. A judge needs to take a you know time off for health, example, and they draw from this bench. People much smarter in the law than I am have proposed ways of working around the lifetime that just because you're appointed to the Supreme Court for life, the law doesn't say that you have to be there every day. <laughs> so there are ways around this particular thing. And I think it's time. I think something like, you know, 12 years. I say 12 because if you have, you know, two four-year terms as president, we don't want them changing over every eight years. And again, that would just emphasize the political conundrum that is the Supreme Court. If you have something like 12 years, you've got another president in between that appointment, et cetera. So just to break in, so it's it's not part it's not in the constitution that they have office for life, uh, yeah, um, so. and it looks like this is just an example of a bill. For all I know, there could have been more recent bills, but this one was from September of 2020, um, a House bill, you know, which obviously did not get passed, but it and it might not even made it out of committee. I'm not sure, but this one would have given 18 year terms for Supreme Court justices. Um, for, this is just an example. This it's is an time. idea that people are, are throwing around. It's time. I think we have to because the stakes are so high. And when you put someone on the court, it's just a matter of time and you end up something like this. You know, In my entire lifetime, this is the worst thing I've seen as far as the Supreme Court goes. And they've made some what I think are wrongheaded decisions. But when I read their reasoning... I'm like, yeah, well, unfortunately, while I disagree, that's what the law says. You know, that's how the law can be interpreted, which is a big part of what they do, because the law can be rather Byzantine. A lot of their job is to say, well, there's a dispute here and we're going to settle the dispute. While I've disagreed with some of those decisions, this is the first time that I've been like, wow, this is just malarkey. This is bullcrap. This is wrong. And here's why it's wrong. And I didn't graduate high school. So the fact that the highest court in the land is pulling this is so disheartening. The fact that 53% of Americans are like, yay, this is great, 
is horrifying. Oh, no. That's, it looks like different polls, you know, it's been 50%, 60%, or 69% who all support upholding Roe. And then people have, you know, different opinions depending on what trimester we're talking about. Don't get me started on that. When you try to put it into the pro-abortion or pro-choice camp or anti-abortion camp, I'm not pro-abortion. Abortion is not ever something that you want to happen. You know, even the most benign circumstances, it's still kind of a bummer. And I don't want anybody to have to do that. I'm not pro-abortion. I'm pro-sex. I think I'm, you know, I'm pro-peace. I am pro a lot of things. I'm not pro-abortion. But I'm very much pro you get to decide what's right for you. And pro-autonomy. Yeah. I mean, it's it's none of my business. You do you. You handle your own stuff. If you're having that situation, it's not a great time. Nobody's having a party about it. I'm not pro. I don't think it's a good thing because it means that something went wrong. But the level of severity I put it at is not very high. It's really not. It's not that big a deal to me. And... The fact that it's being used as such a wedge issue and such a lever to further fracture what little bit of civil cohesion we have is ridiculous to me. You know, it's ridiculous. I, I'm sorry, the people that are going to be affected by this the most. And I know that we, we brought this out here because there are concerns about kink. There really are because sodomy laws, personal privacy laws, privacy in this case is very much not someone peeking in your window, but your right to your own decisions and privacy. I'm not worried that the Gestapo is going to start knocking on the doors of your kinky dungeon and hauling people out in chains, which would be kind of ironic because that's why we went to the dungeon in the first place. (laughs) I'm not trying to equate that. I should have made that point earlier. I'm not, I don't feel like my rights as a kinky person are nearly as in danger as my next door neighbor who's a woman and might need an abortion. Like she's got something serious to worry about. I've got something hypothetical to worry about, but I am worried about. I think that gay people especially have something legitimate to worry about. I think that we all as a society have something to worry about as there are people who are active, who are very energized and who are very concerned about how you live your life. And they are perfectly happy to pass legislation to make that law. And I see our rights getting rolled back. And I will fight against that as hard as I can. So this is the step. This is what I can do right now. I care about you guys. I'm sorry that this thing happened. I'm sorry that we have to live through this. I wish that there was more that I could do. But I will seek out every opportunity I have to speak out against this. To find some way of supporting Planned Parenthood. Some... Because in Michigan, Michigan's one of those states that has trigger laws, by the way. Trigger laws meaning that when Roe is overturned, Michigan's one of those states where it's going to be illegal. So this is going to affect so many people. And it's not going to affect them for the better. One of the things that Alito managed to leave out of his decision was, yeah, there may be precedent for overturning something like this. Never to take something away from people. That's a fundamental thing. There's kind of a ratchet of liberty. Like when you get a right, you tend to keep that right. So this is the first time, at least in any case that I can think of, where we're taking something away. And that is a big difference. That is a fundamental change. So, you know, you Second Amendment guys, what if we just ratcheted that back? I think you'd be a little upset about that. This is how it is. There's nothing protecting anything if this law is overturned by six people out of a huge country. Thank you, Katja, for guiding me through this. Uh, We are going to talk about the law more, hopefully in a more playful and fun setting. (sighs) There there are things about kink and BDSM in the law that I want to cover, and I would love to have your expertise and at least your ability to point me in the right direction. So in addition to the other regular Wednesday podcasts, we will occasionally put out a BDSM and the law podcast. But thank you for coming. Remember that consent is... King. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> apparently not. Consent is what other people think you should do, apparently. Try to take very good care of each other. And we will see you next, next week. week. Wah, 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 wah.